0: Classic question for kids, right? What do you want to be when you grow up? Used to be that that was pretty simple. You had about three options. What dad did, what mum did and maybe something adventurous. (laughs) But just pause for a moment and think about the multitude of choices that a question like that opens up for kids today. Because today we get to choose pretty much everything, don't we? I mean, We get to choose our lifestyle from hairstyles to holidays and everything between. We get to choose everything about our relationships, with him or with her or with them, just for now or for always. We get to make choices about our identity, whether him or her or they or part of this crew or that scene, we are spoilt for choice. And in the midst of all of that, we get to make some pretty big choices about the way that we want to view the world the kind of values that we think will matter to us, the kind of people that we want to be. So with all of that choice today, let's be honest, I think these events in Egypt three and a half thousand years ago, they they can feel totally irrelevant. And yet that's not what God said at the time. You see, even at the time of the plagues in Egypt... God said that the significance of those events then extended far beyond the borders of Egypt and right down through the years that would follow. He summed it up just as the plagues were drawing to an end. If we read on through to chapter 10, which I would genuinely encourage you to do, perhaps this afternoon or this evening, you get to chapter 10, right towards the end, God sets out the point of it all. Chapter 10, verse 2, that you may tell your children and grandchildren the generations to come. Earlier in chapter 9, he said, the point of it all is that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Down the generations to us, right around the world to us. God said again and again in this, this long kind of narrative of these plagues that just rolled on and on, that the point of what he was doing in Egypt, plague after plague after plague, was for people to know him. Moses made the point very plain to Pharaoh in what we've just read from chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 10, all of this is so that we would know that there is no one like the Lord our God. There is no one like him. Now, we might feel a world away from the plagues in Egypt, but they actually speak into the multitude of questions and choices that we make. Because Egypt was a land of choices too. Uh, Egypt was a culture that had a whole host of gods that that shaped the choices and the worldviews of its people. And the God of Israel broke in with these amazing demonstrations of His power with a very clear message, that you will know that I am the Lord, that there is no one like me. So I think through all of the, the chaos and the destruction of the plagues that can be kind of hard to relate to, we see that there's some incredibly good news being shared here because the more we see of this holy God, the more we appreciate what a joy it is to be his people. So with a river of blood and and frogs going everywhere and gnats all over the place, destruction and chaos, what on earth is going on here? Well, I think some context is helpful for us to make sense of it all. At this point in history, uh, the tiny nation of Israel, they've been enslaved in Egypt and God is responding by sending a guy called Moses and his brother Aaron to rescue them. They have that very clear message that we were all saying to Pharaoh up here, let my people go. What unfolds though is it becomes pretty clear that this is not just telling Pharaoh to stop oppressing a minority people group. But actually this is a battle of the gods. I mentioned Egypt was a land of many gods and Pharaoh himself was worshipped as a god. So this is all about Yahweh, the God of Israel, claiming that he has the authority to tell the gods of Egypt what to do. But the story's been told in a really careful way to highlight that there's actually something even bigger than that going on. This isn't just a, you know, a contest of which God has got the biggest biceps. We actually need to see that there's a battle for the whole purposes of creation laid out for us here. Now, from what we read tonight uh, today, you might kind of think, Gee, that's, I didn't see that. Uh, in, in what Chris just read for us but I want to take us back to the very start of Exodus that we looked at just a couple of months ago because we saw there that the whole story of Exodus is being set up with God's good creation in mind. There are a whole bunch of key words that even highlighted that for us. Exodus chapter 1 verse 7, as the story begins, we read that the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land, or the same word, the earth, was filled with them. If we go back to the first chapter of Genesis, the account of God's creation and His blessing on humanity, God said to humanity, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. I've got it underlined to make it really obvious to us. Those words from Genesis chapter 1, they are very intentionally repeated in Exodus chapter 1. God is showing us that in Israel, there's this small scale model of what God had planned for all of humanity. But what was Pharaoh's response to this flourishing humanity back there in chapter 1? Pharaoh said, oh, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. He thought that was a bad thing. We must deal shrewdly with them. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour. And then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. And so the connection with Genesis 1 helps us to see that this is more than just murder and slavery and oppression that Pharaoh's on about, as if that wasn't bad enough it's actually, even potentially unwittingly, it's Pharaoh trying to sideline the very purposes of God in creation. And I don't think Pharaoh had any idea just how big a fight he'd picked. But all of this gives us context for what's going on in these really destructive plagues that we're reading about this morning. I think there's two big points that we're going to drill down into to help us to kind of appreciate the richness of this story. That as God shows that, There is no one like him Well, we're seeing God's good order and the horror of chaos and we're seeing God's overwhelming power and the futility of alternative options. It'll speak right into our lives with the multitude of choice that we face. Now we're not going to try and read over all four chapters uh, as these plagues unpack. There is just too much information, too much to to get our heads around but it's it's really rich and, and something that I'd really encourage you to read through. But as we do, there's a few things that help highlight just how carefully this story is told. Because there's a pattern that marks out three cycles of three plagues. Now, we, we read that first cycle, that's why we read of three plagues. And we read in chapter 7 verse 15 the way that God sent Moses and Aaron for the first of these plagues. God tells Moses and Aaron to go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river confront him on the bank of the Nile and then say to him, let my people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, confront him and say to him, the Lord says, let my people go. It's his early morning meeting and that same instruction is then given at the start of the fourth and the seventh as well, creating a cycle of three and in the same way, we just saw that the, the second plague of the frogs, there was no early morning meeting, just go and speak to Pharaoh. That follows the cycle as well. When we got that really brief account of the gnats, there was no conversation that Moses and Aaron had with Pharaoh, they just, they just did it, which is exactly how it turns out. The three cycles of three plagues follow the same pattern each time. In the first three, they use Aaron's staff as kind of the, the pointer, <laughs> making the point. In the second cycle of three, they don't use any staffs. They just say things and it happens. In the third third cycle of threes, it's Moses' staff that's now become the implement of choice. It's a really carefully structured set of events and the way that it's recorded for us. And that reminds us of the really structured account of God's creation in Genesis, where each day God said, let there be, and there was, and it was good, structured and ordered. But at the same time, in the midst of this structure here in Exodus, the plagues are just bringing chaos. It's hard for us to picture, but to begin with, the Nile, that is transformed from being the the lifeblood of Egypt to the source of death. Instead of providing abundant water for a fertile economy, the, the fish die and the people can't drink it. And there have been all sorts of attempts to try and give a natural explanation for what this describes. I mean, is it some kind of red algal bloom that happens to be known to exist in the Nile? Um, is, it the, is it the sudden influx of red clay sediment? Because there's a whole lot of red clay sediment around the Nile. Various different explanations have been attempted. But what is really clear from Exodus account is that this is clearly a phenomenon that comes at God's hand. However, he's chosen to bring it about. And it brings chaos to the land. And in the same way, the plague of frogs, that brings chaos because frogs, they belong in the river. That is the right place for the frogs in Egypt. And instead, they're in the ovens and the beds and all sorts of places. You don't want squeamish, squeaky, slimy frogs. And it reminds us that this is the undoing of the good order that God built into creation. When God created, he created a space, the sky or the sea, and he filled it with creatures that belong there, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and, and now we've got frogs everywhere they don't belong. And as the plagues roll on and on, they are structured, intentional demonstrations of the horror of chaos. When God's good order of creation is turned on its head. Now that actually comes through most of all in the third of these cycles of plagues where God symbolically winds back the very fabric of creation itself. So the third cycle begins with a plague of hail, a catastrophic hailstorm, the worst that has ever been seen in Egypt or will be seen again is, is how it's reported in Exodus. It's a storm where God actually, in grace, gives, gives Pharaoh the warning, this is going to be so terrible that anyone caught out in it, animal or person, will, will die. And so there's this amazing little scene where some people amongst the Egyptians have actually realised it's worth paying attention to what God says and they bring their people and their, their, their livestock in and take shelter. And, but everyone who is left out, animal or person who is left out in the storm, dies. It's the first plague that actually takes human life. But we should remember that from that first chapter of the Bible, people and animals, they are the things that God made at the end of his creating work, kind of the climax of his creation. Well, then God symbolically, he winds creation back another step with the second to last plague, the the second one in that cycle of three, when he sends a devastating plague of locusts. If we read chapter 10, verse 15, we read that these locusts devoured everything that was left after the hail, everything growing in the field and the fruit on the trees, nothing green remained on tree or plant in all of the land of Egypt. The plant life that God created right in the middle of his six days of creation is just stripped bare. And then in the third plague of the third cycle... God takes it right back to the beginning when he when he leaves them in utter darkness because how did God begin it all? He said let there be light and now he's turned the lights out and I don't think Pharaoh knew just how big a fight he'd picked that with his agenda of oppression trying to wipe out a thriving Israel Pharaoh was running right across the grain of God's good purposes for creation. And in these plagues, God gives Pharaoh a taste of what it would be like for God's good order, God's good purposes to give way to chaos. And it's horrific. And it really is horrific. I think James sort of captured just that that endless cycle that it would have been, but what would it have been like to have been an Egyptian going about your daily business? We thought COVID was tough. And yet even those terrible scenes out of Brazil, that just was an image on the news that imprinted to, you know, drone footage of a whole paddock that's been turned over to graves. Or, or morgues in New York, the most developed city in the world, overwhelmed by COVID. Yet all of that brings is, is nothing on, the, on the, the chaos and the destruction by, brought about by these plagues. And God is making his point that he is the one who keeps chaos on a leash. And when he lets that leash run loose, the outcome is horrific. So for all of the destruction and the horror of these plagues, there is actually a kindness from God in sending them and limiting them. The chaos was still on a tight leash, so he could end the frogs with a word of prayer from Moses. And plague after plague after plague... He does that. He puts chaos back in the box. But the point is clear. You disregard God's good order at your peril. So what do we do with that today? We might be tempted to jump on a a moral high horse and start raving about all of those people who disregard God's good order in one way or another. But before we do that, let's remember that God has already told us what the point of it all was and it's not so that we can rage against a broken society but so that we can stand in awe of a mighty God to know that he is the Lord and there is no one like him to recognize that he is the awesome creator of all things who brought order out of chaos to see that he is the one with the agenda for human life to to thrive and to flourish and that he delights in the beauty of his his wonderful creation, to acknowledge that God alone has both the right and the wisdom to teach us how to enjoy his good creation, to humbly recognize that in this way we are like Pharaoh, that we ignore the reality of who God is at our peril. God said to Pharaoh, by this you will know, that there is no one like me. And friends, that brings us to the second point, which we'll only really appreciate if we're willing to ponder a question for ourselves. What do you depend on to bring order to the chaos of your life? What do you depend on to bring order to the chaos of your life? Because in these plagues... God is rolling out for us not only his awesome power, but he's demonstrating the futility of any alternative. And we actually saw that if we kind of recognize the character uh, play that was going on in what we just read. We saw how futile the alternatives were in those first three plagues. When God turned the water of Egypt to blood, Pharaoh's magicians, they're able, they able to sort of step up and meet him on that. They could do it. Then again, when God brought forth a plague of frogs, yep, the magicians, they could copy that too. But who did Pharaoh turn to when he really wanted to get the frogs out of his bed? His magicians couldn't help. He actually came to Moses and said, pray to your God to take them away. He needed Moses' God to do that. And then when God turned the dust into gnats, the magicians were tapped out. They were done. Chapter 8, verse 18, we read it. When the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. The magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. We're only in the third plague and they're done. They're cooked. There's a clear progression though that, that they had no alternative power that could stand in the face of the awesome power of God. But actually behind the scenes, in a way that you know, we don't pick up because most of us aren't ancient Egyptians even if you're Egyptians, you're not ancient. Behind the scenes, there are a number of hints that God is actually thumbing his nose at a whole bunch of the Egyptian gods along the way. See, for one, the Egyptians revered the god Hapi. Apologies to anyone who actually knows how to pronounce these uh, names correctly. I've tried to uh, respect this ancient culture. But Hapi is the god of the Nile who brought fertility to the whole land. Through the annual flooding of the Nile, that is what made Egypt kind of really, really hum. the annual flooding of the Nile that actually spread the, the fertile sediment out, and Hapi was the god who was worshipped as, as being behind all of that. What would it have looked like for your average Egyptian to see the Nile rendered lifeless? Similarly, the Egyptian goddess of fertility and childbirth, Heket was pictured with a frog head. So I wonder if the Egyptians thought of her when they were hit with a plague of frogs. Now various people have suggested all sorts of other potential parallels, but I think the most profound challenge is thrown down in the darkness of the ninth plague. Because at the head of all of their pantheon of gods in Egypt was the sun god Ra. He's pictured here with a a sun disc above his head. Ra was the source of energy and creation and the head over the whole household of gods and he was considered to be kind of the god and the father of Pharaoh the king and in the ninth plague what does God do? He turns out the lights. Three days with no sun, just total darkness. It's a demonstration of his power that literally overshadows any alternatives that the Egyptians might have turned to for their their security, for their fertility, for their productivity, for their settled way of life, for their prosperity. And while it feels a world away from us, because I doubt that many of us worship the sun or have a fertility God in particular, it doesn't take much to see how those connections from Exodus run through to the incredible claims of Jesus. God's point in the plagues in exodus was to show that there was none like him. It was about the exclusive claim that he alone is the one who can bring order from the chaos. That he alone can ensure human flourishing. And all of that is focused in on Jesus. I mean, think of what he did. He demonstrated his power of a creation by calming a storm with his words. He showed that like the creator, he can multiply and produce when he he fed a whole crowd from a kid's lunchbox. He had the power to bring order from chaos as he healed the leper, as he cast out evil demons, that he even had power over death when he rose from the grave himself. But it wasn't just what he did. Jesus said that any alternative to him was futile, that there is no one like him. I am the way, the truth and the life, said Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, says Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. They are incredibly bold words. There is no one else like him. And so I hope you can see the point of the question that I asked you. What do you depend on to bring order to the chaos of your life? Or to change that question around as a bit more kind of probing, diagnostic, I want, to ask, want you to ask yourself, what thing, if I didn't have it in my life, would leave me with a total sense of chaos? But friends, it's, it's not a question that's kind of intended to prompt us to guilt. Oh, I feel so bad that I feel that way. But rather the point of this question is to prompt us to a genuine faith. To faith that leans into the statement that there really is no one like him. No one else in all the universe who can tame the chaos. That any alternative that we might turn to is futile. We might not worship the sun or a frog-headed fertility god but there is no doubt that we can so easily get caught up in the world's means of trying to put chaos in a box, trying to bring order to our lives in all kinds of ways, apart from Jesus. And I think if there's one thing that comes through in this sequence of nine just terrifying plagues, it is surely the patience and the kindness of God in showing us the truth. You see, when Moses came to Pharaoh for that final early morning meeting before the third cycle of plagues began with that, with that her- terrible hailstorm, God said it straight up to Pharaoh, chapter 9, verse 15. If you want to note this down as one of the really kind of crux moments in this whole back and forth, God says to Pharaoh through Moses, by now I could have stretched out my hand and wiped you off the earth, but I've raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God could have wiped him out. But instead he'd given Pharaoh round after round after round of of warning and demonstration and opportunity for Pharaoh to pause and to reconsider and and to step back and to change course, for Pharaoh to acknowledge that there is no one like the Lord. Now we we might read a statement like that from God and think, actually that's pretty arrogant, it's pretty manipulative for God to do all of this, so much destruction, just so that he can show his power so that people will hear about him we have words for people like that (laughs) narcissist egotistical but remember who he is god is actually the creator who brings order from chaos he is the god who causes life to flourish and thrive so it is actually a great kindness of him that he would make himself known that he would show up, that, that it's a great blessing that he demonstrates his power so that we might put our faith in him. I don't know about you but I am constantly reminded that I am an incredibly fragile creature and it's truly wonderful to know the goodness and the power of the God who is over all of the universe, that out of his kindness he has shown us his glory while patiently giving us opportunity to respond in humility because at the end of the day it was a big question of pride for pharaoh and i think it is for us too and just ponder it for pharaoh king of egypt at its time the the greatest power in the known world it would have been so humbling for pharaoh to admit that he got it wrong but in his pride instead of stepping back and changing course he just digs in and digs in God calls him out on it in chapter 10, verse 3. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? And friends, I wonder if that serves as a really probing kind of question for us too. To consider that same question with a deep humility. What, what, what thing, if I didn't have it in my life, would leave me with a sense of total chaos? And then to humbly bring that before Jesus and ask him to take its place. god makes it clear that he didn't send jesus to condemn us but to save us that in his great love and his patience he sent he sent his son to show that there is indeed no one like him so that we could turn from our scrambling futility uh, our pursuit of fertility and prosperity and security and recognize that god alone can walk us through the chaos of life without fear and with deep assurance As I ponder what it would have been like to have seen and to heard the Lord Jesus, are these words from his closest friend, the disciple John, came to mind. You can just hear his passion because he wants us to know it too. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only, the one and only son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. There really is no one like him. So let's pray.